0: My guest this week is a writer and performer known for his deadpan style and unique comic timing. He's a writer, a performer, and a master of geopolitical insights and analysis. He spent 11 years as a writer and performer on Late Show with David Letterman, and seven on Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. I'm excited to talk to multi-Emmy and Writers Guild board, Joe Grossman. So thank you for doing this. Sure. Thank you for inviting me. And... I always start out with asking uh, my guests, what were your comedy influences when you were younger?
1: Um, I, I always, I mean, I, I watched pretty much anything that was on TV because uh, there weren't a lot of restrictions on that in my family, unfortunately. Uh, so pretty much anything that was on TV and that was supposed to be funny, I just latched onto. So, you know, if it's cartoons or or reruns of sitcoms, you know, if, you know, there's no reason in eight you don't should be watching Benson, but apparently I was. Uh, you know, whatever happened to be on TV, I'd watch it. Variety shows. Uh, I like to read the comic strips in the newspaper, and I'd listen to old radio shows. That my, you know, my dad would buy the old radio shows on tape, and we'd listen to Jack Benny in the car and stuff. So basically, just anything that was supposed to be funny, I just enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, almost anything. Um, but, but the first thing that really resonated with me deeply was was watching Dave when I was probably like 14 or so. Like that's the one that made me think, oh. I'd like to become a part of this somehow. I don't know how or in what capacity, but if I could somehow, uh, worm my way into this kind of, uh, racket, I'd really like to do that.
0: And that was still in the NBC years?
1: Yeah. Uh, I started watching, uh, probably around 89, 90, sort of the later end of the NBC years when, you know, not necessarily the show's creative peak, like it was already kind of becoming a little more, uh, I think into the years when Dave wouldn't be willing to do as many things as he might have been willing to do a few years earlier, but it was still just a revelation to me to see this show where it had the spirit of no one's watching. So let's just do whatever we feel like. Let's let's find creative ways to waste an hour of network airtime and and, and to a a surly child. That was very appealing.
0: You and I are, are pretty similar age. And I started watching Letterman about 1990 as well. In fact, my permissive present was a VCR, so I could tape Dave and watch them when I came home from school.
1: Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, uh, we already had a VCR, but that's like the first time I really started using it heavily was to record them at night. And then I often just recorded it and watched it at the same time and then watched it again tomorrow, the next day, and then over and over again, and uh, it was just, transfixing, you know, it was, it was, uh, and again, I I felt kind of bad because I I didn't really get to see all the great things he did in the earlier years. You know, if you watch the shows from the eighties, when he was just really doing anything, when they're doing all the crazy theme shows and the weird remotes and everything, those had largely been pared back by the time I I started watching, but, uh, but yeah, even that, later version of the show was still just a, a, a huge deal to me
0: were you a fan of uh, chris elliott's appearances
1: yeah i was I, I used to watch chris again i started watching right around the time he left because i think 1990 right. or so is when he left to do Kettle, get a life but uh I, i'd watch the shows sometimes with my dad after school and he didn't like much of anything except star trek and mash uh but he would watch letterman because i said oh that's chris elliott his dad was Bob and Ray, uh, was Bob Elliot of Bob and Ray. So we thought, oh, okay, I guess I'll watch that. And uh, I, I think he found Chris Elliott amusingly stupid. And uh, I know my mom hated Chris Elliott, which is actually a very high compliment related to Chris Elliott. <laughs> Nothing against my mom, but she probably doesn't have the you know, sharpest, uh, edgiest sense of humor out there. Uh, but yeah, I love Chris Elliott. And I remember saying, oh, he's going to get his own show. That's amazing. It's going to be called Get a Life without a grown-up paperboy. How, how cool is that? So, yeah.
0: I was lucky enough to have, I think you were my 10th or 11th uh, Letterman writer on the on the podcast, starting with sure. Andy Breckman, who was there the first year. Yeah,
1: I've listened to most of your Letterman episodes. I, I went back, when, when you sent the invitation, I thought, oh, who is this person? Who does he talk to? So I went back and I saw, oh, wow, you, you've talked to a lot of, I mean, a lot of writers in general, but also a lot of Letterman writers and writers at other late night shows. So I, I was very impressed to see the the, 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 the very deep bench of talent you've been talking to and, and not just the obvious people you know uh, but also people you wouldn't necessarily think would be would be on someone's radar so yeah
0: yeah I, I for some reason i haven't been able to crack conan i think it's because he has his own podcast and they come oh around. yeah
1: and his writers have a podcast also sort of or right. two of his writers so maybe there's yeah letterman is sort of i think defunct enough that we can just kind of go wherever we want
0: start writing in high school or writing jokes coming up with things
1: uh i would try little things here and there when i was in high school i I knew i wanted to do something kind of funny i thought maybe well, should i be a cartoonist maybe that's like there wasn't really a a proper outlet for these things because i didn't know what a comedy writer was so i thought well cartoonist if i could you know be like you know, draw stuff like, you know, The Fireside or Bloom County or those things that I read, maybe that's something. But I was not a very good artist, so I, I tried. I wasn't good at it. And then that was also the years of the stand-up comedy boom in the 80s. Uh, so I thought, well, is that what I'm supposed to do if I want to do comedy? But that always made me uncomfortable. Like, I, I was never comfortable with the idea of being the person on stage telling jokes, like kind of saying, hey, everyone, listen to me. I'm super funny. I need your attention. Like, that always made my skin crawl a little bit. That's great for some people, but I, I knew I did not have the personality to pull that off. And, and it was I think on Letterman, when I, when I started noticing, oh, there are credits at the end of the show with all these writers who wrote that material, maybe that's a way to get into this. And, and I, I like the idea of, of doing that because it was sort of the uh, coward's way of being funny. You, know? you write the jokes more or less anonymously, give them to a much better known person to either succeed or fail with them. And either way, you get paid, so you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, but I didn't really do a lot of creative writing. I, I was a decent writer at school just for, you know, term papers and stuff. But in terms of creative writing, eh, not really.
0: In my senior year of high school, we actually had a, um, I wrote the uh, top 10 reasons it's good to be, you know, a Massapequa high school class of 95 graduate. Yeah. And that was the t-shirt that we did.
1: Yeah, there were so many of those t-shirts around that for, for, like, in the early 90s, like every school had their own version of that t-shirt, and uh, yeah, it, it just shows how deeply the show uh, permeated the culture for a while, and how
0: much Dave's sensibility, or his show's sensibility, uh, impacted everything. Plus, I was from where Joey Botafoucault was, so every night,
1: okay. we knew we were going to be mentioned. Yeah. I'm I'm lucky I was not there for those years. I don't know if I would have succeeded very well then,
0: but yeah. You went to Lewis and Clark College.
1: I did. That's right.
0: In Oregon. Yes. Okay, because I wanted to make sure I did the correct. Monica. I don't to
1: find a lot there, but yeah.
0: Monica Lewinsky went there.
1: She did briefly. I don't. I, I, I don't think we ever crossed paths, but I think we were there around the same time. Um, our other most famous alumna at the time, as you've probably discovered by now, was Marky Post. Yes. I know you're a big. Night Court fans, so that probably means something to you. Um, but yeah, we were not really one of the powerhouse schools. We weren't like Harvard with this pipeline going directly to all the big comedy shows in New York. It was. Uh, yeah, but it was it was a good education, good liberal arts experience. And uh, yeah,
0: And it's a self-sustaining school, which I thought was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if it was at the time, but it is now. So, yeah, it's, it's a yeah, it's a good place. I'm very happy with it. I'd happily endorse them.
0: OK. And they saw that you went to the American Comedy Institute.
1: Okay. Well, um,
0: <laughs> I don't know what that is.
1: I, I didn't, I did once, uh, when I was writing for a magazine in, uh, like 2002-ish, uh, I was, I wrote for Time Out New York Magazine. Okay. So a local magazine in New York City about, you know, covers arts and entertainment events, things to do around town, listings. And I ran their live comedy section and their TV section. And occasionally I'd write little articles here and there. And one time it came up, I don't even know who suggested it, but someone's saying, oh, they have all these stand-up comedy classes. What if we take our deeply introverted and awkward comedy editor and send him to one of these comedy classes to see if we can make him a wacky, hilarious stand-up? So I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll do that. So I signed up for a class at the uh, American Comedy Institute. I guess that's what it was called. I, I don't even remember often. So I took like, a, I don't know, like an eight-week course there or something. Um but yes, I, I don't want to make it seem like that was my, my no. education or anything. But yeah, I, I took a very brief course there just for the sake of writing an article about what it's like for uh, someone who has no business being on stage to try to do five minutes of stand-up comedy. So uh, that's what that was. But yeah, it was a fun experience. And I, I, I certainly, if nothing else, it was helpful for me to sort of come out as a comedy person. Like I. I I had a really hard time. Yeah, I was always embarrassed by the idea of wanting to do comedy professionally. It seems silly or frivolous or unrealistic. It seems kind of like saying, you know, I want to be a rock star or something like that. It's just, no, you're, you're not going to be a professional comedian, especially if you're not funny. Like, I was not a funny person or anyone anyone would think was funny. It's like I can make a sly remark to my friends, but no one would ever think of me as someone who's even even verbal, let alone funny. Um, but, yeah, so, so that was sort of a way for me to, okay, yeah, I do actually want to try to do some sort of comedy thing, even if it's not stand-up. This is a way for me to come out and say, yeah, I'm I'm interested in the general field. So yeah, that's what that was. Time out. You know, it's just it it was it was uh, it was a fairly well-regarded but small local magazine. It was an offshoot of a very popular British publication that finally uh, wrapped up after like 50 years, just a few months ago. But yeah, that was my first real writing job, and and uh, uh, writing for a magazine, while very different from writing for television, uh, it certainly maybe comfortable enough with the idea of at least being a writer and trying to put some funny things on paper and force myself to let other people read them. So that was all a very valuable experience for someone who really had to force himself out to try to do
0: this whole comedy thing. All right. So that was in 2002. And by 2004, you were writing for London.
1: Yeah. I worked at Time Out from 2000 to 2004. I'd made some other weird little efforts to get to television before that I, I, I moved to New York in '98 with this half-baked plan to. Well, I've heard about these page programs. Maybe I could, you know, apply to those and uh, either get a job at either Letterman or Conan, which are my two, you know, the two shows that I wanted to work at more than anything else. Um, I got turned down by both programs, but reapplied and I eventually got into the NBC program, which was great. But I, I'm not much of a schmoozer, and your whole thing there is. You got to schmooze while you're there to try to get a real job. And if you don't do that, then you're out. So, uh, my time there elapsed and then I was lucky enough to get a job ready for time
0: out. Okay. So then how did you go from time out to, to Letterman? So what was in your submission packet for Letterman?
1: Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Oh yeah. I meant to go back. Yeah. Uh, the, the other half of my, this, this relates to that. The other half of my little plan when I, when I moved to New York, um, I don't, I also heard that you know pretty much any late night show uh, would not accept submissions unless they came through an agent. But I also found out that for some reason, Letterman was an exception to that. They would take outside submissions without an agent, as long as you first signed a release form. So I had to call in multiple times to request that release form, but eventually I got it. And it was just for a form saying, you know, I promise not to sue the show if you don't hire me, whatever. It was fine. And then it just basically said, please write jokes for these three top 10 list topics. Uh, one was, I think signs your gym teacher is nuts. One is signs your, uh, sorry, uh, ways the world would be different if a dog were president. And I don't remember the other one, but you know, it's pretty straightforward stuff. And then also just write like a page or two of your own ideas, whatever you think would work for the show. And so that was 1998. And I gave myself a one month deadline to write that packet and mail it back in. And, uh, and then I, I chickened out and I put it in my desk drawer, and didn't touch it for four years. So that um, kind of sat in my desk uh, until 2002. Uh, but then after I'd been working in timeout for, I guess, like two years and I become a little more comfortable with writing and trying to be funny and putting myself out there, I thought, okay, let's dust off the old packet and, and, and write it out. So yeah, it was an outdated packet, certainly, but they still accepted it. So I I, I wrote those three top 10 lists and then a couple of pages of miscellaneous uh, ideas for whatever, desk pieces or remotes or whatever, things that I'm sure were all wrong for the show. Uh, And then I mailed it in. And uh, to my amazement, a couple weeks later, I got got a call from the writer's assistant, uh, Bob Borden, who appeared on the show many times, saying that the head writer's read my packet and they wanted me to write another packet. So, okay, so I'll write another packet. And at that time, I wrote it within a few days and I mailed it in. And then they, they called me in for an interview. And it's like, holy Jesus, how is, how is this happening? This is not how it's supposed to happen. And it all happened so fast. So we had the interview and we talked. We didn't talk about the show at all. I didn't talk about Dave at all. Just, just kind of sitting around with a couple guys talking about whatever nonsense was going on in the world, you know, bad movies and TV and old game shows I used to watch in the seventies and eighties, you know, and then, uh, and then I left and I thought I might have a job at letterman. This is crazy. And then a week goes by and then two weeks goes by and then a month and I watch the show every night and I watch the credits and I see eventually they add a new name to the writing credits. It's like, Oh, okay. I guess I didn't get it. So I figured, okay, I blew my one big chance. This is never happening, but at least I tried And then like seven eight months later, I get another call from the writer's assistant saying hey uh can you come in for another interview and I it's like oh okay sure so i come in for another interview and it's like the exact same thing we just sit there and talk and it's fine and then i go home and then I, you know i watch the show and the credits and there's another new name in the credits yeah. so again i got turned down it's like oh okay okay but i didn't screw it up the first time i definitely screwed it up this time and then, like, another eight months later, I get a third call, blah, 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 same thing. And this time, they actually hired me. So, apparently, I was their third choice for that slot, which is fine. I have no problem being the third choice as long as I get called up, you know. Um, but it was it was a little nerve-wracking for that year to think that I screwed up or whatever. Uh, but also, when I eventually did get hired to know, oh, by the way, the last two guys who got hired for this were fired within six months. And it turns out it wasn't just them. It was also, like, the previous three or four writers who got hired. We're also fired within six to nine months, maybe. And then after I was hired, like the next six or seven writers, all you know, like in the whole time, like there was only me and one other writer who was hired around that same time who actually lasted. And then everyone else just, you know, it got taken down pretty quick. So, yeah, very stressful.
0: Who was the head writer at that point?
1: I was the uh, Stengel brothers, Eric Stengel and Justin Stengel. They were the ones who interviewed me and read my packet and liked my packet and hired me. Yes, they turned me down the first two times, but they also hired me the third time. So I, I again, I'm, I'm happy to win the bronze medal. It's totally fine with me. And I'm very, very grateful they did hire me because again, I was, you know, they were hiring other people who worked on other shows. It was, you know, if I were them, I would have hired the people who worked at I don't know what it was, but a Daily Show or The Onion or whatever. Of course, I would hire them, too, over some guy who wrote listings for Time Out magazine, you know. But but they eventually did take a chance on me, and, and, and I'm very, very grateful for
0: that. Okay, do you remember the first joke you wrote that got on?
1: It, it was kind of a weird thing, because they were doing shows out of order that week. So all my my first week of shows were all scrambled up. I'm sure it was a top ten list of some sort, and the joke probably wasn't that good. and probably wouldn't hold up, uh, whatever, 18 years later. Um, But I know I got some stuff in the top 10 list that first night. I know I got an act five in. I don't know if you know what that is. Um, Sort of toward the end of the show, there'd be like this super long commercial break where they would just have in the middle, like one little shot of the audience cheering and then Alan Coulter would read a silly announcement over that shot. So we needed to always write Alan's announcement for that night, usually some weird non sequitur or something that doesn't make any sense. And I wrote some nonsense about daylight savings, which was not actually that week anyway. And uh, that got on my first night. So that and some top tens. Um, yeah, I I, I I find the jokes themselves in most cases don't really stand the test of time. Uh, so many of them are just so topical that you don't even remember what they're in reference to anymore. Like, I can go back and read all of my greatest hits about Balloon Boy or the Octabomb, but uh, I don't know. I don't know if they really stand the test of time.
0: Well, I just remember who the Balloon Boy was.
1: Yeah. Yep. Tyler Heaney. A lot of jokes about Balloon Boy, yeah, there's so many references that still bounce around my mind that, you know, there's no reason to still remember it, but, you know, the 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 astronaut lady who drove cross country wearing adult diapers and, you know, just all these little yeah. things that were a big story for two and a half days and then disappeared, you know, I still have occasional nightmares about running these jokes, so.
0: We need five jokes about the lady with the diaper.
1: And that's what the show was for uh, for me for eleven years. You know, I know we've written jokes about this for the past three days, but we got to do do them for another day or another week, and it's just the same thing over and over again. And that that's the that's the job. That's what you sign up for, and it's, it can be very rewarding, but it can also be very uh, draining. And again, I'm hugely lucky to have had the job, but it wasn't always the dream job one might imagine.
0: Every writer I've talked to has a different relationship with uh, Dave himself. Now, he wasn't yeah. there he wasn't there when you got hired. You, you said the Stengel brothers uh, hired you. Yeah. So yeah. When, did, when did you first meet him?
1: Uh, so I was hired, by, my first day at the show was April 5th, 2004. I still remember that. And uh, the first time I was properly introduced to Dave was September of 2005. So about a year and a half later. <laughs> um, I, I, I think it's kind of the same thing as, as, as the way a farmer doesn't name his animals you know, maybe the host doesn't really get to know the, the new writers too well, because they might not be around too long. Um, but also, Dave was not really, uh, by that time, and as, as sure it's, it's no big secret, he, he was not really as engaged with the whole process of the show. He wasn't in writers' meetings, obviously. Uh, we, the writers, worked on our own, the head writers, and then everything was sent, you know, through them to Dave. Uh, the only reason I met Dave that night, actually, a year and a half later, was because... Uh, the Stangles had written me into a bit that night. I don't know if you remember they had a thing called the late show bear.
0: Yeah. Can, is it, Yeah, can a guy in a bear suit or is that different?
1: Not quite that, that was a different thing. There, there was, there was a fair amount of bear humor there over the years. This was, uh, every night for a while in 2005 or so they would have Dave say, okay, now it's time to put away the late show bear. And
0: okay, they cut to a
1: little pre-tape of someone in the basement of the theater, uh, kind of wrestling a guy in a giant bear costume and push him behind this big, heavy metal door and close the door shut behind him. And uh, it's hard to explain that to someone nowadays why that was something we did, but it was. So every night they needed a new staffer to put away the late show bear. And of course, the first few nights, yeah, you start off, it's Paul, it's Alan, it's Biff. It's, you need to get Rupert in there. But if you do this for three or four months, you got to start getting to some staffers who might not be as well-known. So eventually the Stengels were scraping the barrel by putting me on the show. It's like, oh, let's put the, the new right newish writer on the show so dave actually had to say okay putting away the late show bear tonight is writer joe grossman and he turns to paul and says we don't have a writer named joe grossman do we and paul says i've never heard of him it's like oh okay well i guess we have a writer named i don't know Uh, putting away the late show bear tonight is alleged writer joe grossman i don't know so let's let's take it away let me show the clip And and then i guess after that uh it was decided oh maybe we should have dave meet this person so they brought me down it was myself and uh, one other writer who had just been hired maybe a month or two earlier uh, to very briefly meet with him in his uh, conference room. Uh, it was maybe one minute best, just, hello, how you doing? Thank you very much. He would thank us for being there. Thank you very much. And then that's it. And, uh, and then I think a few weeks later, the other writer was fired. But yeah, it, it was a year and a half before I properly met Dave. I, I, I had uh casually run into him a few times before I, I think the first time i ever met him was i'd only been there for a couple of months and i was leaving at the end of the day and it was you know the building was mostly empty and i was just walking home I was in the elevator and the elevator stops on 12 which was his floor at the time and i think oh god no please no no not that i didn't want to meet him just that i was nervous it's like I, I don't know if i'm ready for this the door opens and oh and here comes dave and it's like oh i, I i'm seeing him in person and why am I seeing this guy in person when he's supposed to be on a TV screen? You know, it just doesn't make sense. And he gets on he says, oh, hello, how are you doing? I said, oh, I'm good. And he sees I'm holding a newspaper under my arm. And he says, where'd you get that newspaper? And I said, uh, I brought it from home. And he said, good answer. You've been having a lot of problems with people stealing newspapers. Okay. <laughs> and he was joking. He was, he was not really grilling me. He was just trying to make some silly small talk. But that was my first experience was him. I think he probably assumed I was an intern because I was very, very young looking at the time. And uh, he never met me. So I, I assume he thought I was just something an intern. But uh, there was that. And then a few months later, I, I almost ran over by him. He was racing to the basement. He had a ritual. It, it's been talked about. I'm not like breaking any news here. But uh, he used to, when he was going from his uh, office to the theater to actually get ready for the show, he had to go through the basement to get there, and he'd run at top speed through the basement corridors, and usually there was someone there who was supposed to kind of clear the corridors to make sure no one was in the way, but I guess that person didn't show up that day, and I didn't know the schedule, so I was in that hallway just as Dave raced by, and I almost ran into him, and he ran into me, whatever, and I I, I felt terrible because I thought I almost killed the host of the late show. Um, But yeah, those are my first two (laughs) run-ins, pun unintended mm-hmm. uh, and, and then later on was the the, the the proper introduction
0: i was gonna ask you when your first appearance was but that, that would be with the bear
1: the late show bear was my first I, I think that was my first actual appearance it's definitely my first appearance by name i know uh they'd occasionally use my photo and silly comedy pieces here and there like oh you know the late show employee of the night is so-and-so or something like that but like to actually have me yeah, that, that, was, that was my first real appearance. And that was the Stangles who started putting me on the show. And then um, other writers started doing it as well in other capacities. Uh, Lee Ellenberg and Jeremy Weiner are two other really wonderful writers who are good friends when I was there. And they wrote a million great pieces for me. And Tom Rubrick and Steve Young and Bill Schiff. And almost everyone started, after a couple of years of me doing these little small roles. they started running into more prominent things. So that, that was very nice of them. Uh, but yeah, I guess the only show there was.
0: So unlike most of the people who wanted to be performers on that show, you didn't write yourself in, to.
1: No, 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 no. I, I didn't want to be a performer. I, I was very flattered, and I was, you know, quietly excited to do it. But um, if I'd ever shown any indication of wanting to be on the show, that probably would have guaranteed that I would never be on the show. You know, it's right. like anyone who wants this too much, like the whole reason Dave's thing pretty much throughout the entire run was he liked to put people on the show who had no business being on television, you know? Like, but Melman, you know, this guy, an actor who can't really, it's all people who can't act and have no interest in acting, but that's, Dave liked that kind of awkward energy on the show. So I guess the other writers figured, oh, we have a writer here who can kind of do that. Let's add him into the mix. But I was no, I mean, I'm not, I wasn't like a Chris Light or something where I had all these great ideas for crazy characters and amazing things the you know, sketches to do for myself like I, I was never like that i was just you know someone would pitch a thing for me and maybe i'd help write it but i, I would never say hey you know what the show really needs tonight me yeah. that's what america wants to see you know i didn't want to be like that and i'm not i'm sorry i don't mean to make that sound like to knock at someone like chris elliott or all these other writers who are great like if you're a, a a genius talent like like chris elliott or like all these guys on conan like you know brian mccann and brian stack then it's great but if you have zero personality and zero charisma like i do then you have no business in trying to, you know, force yourself onto the show.
0: So the monkey.
1: The monkey. What's Sherman. It? Sherman. The German monkey. Sherman. Oh, Sherman. Oh, Sherman. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I said German. Like there's, a, there's a German monkey. Oh, I, Sherman be, the monkey. I'd be scared of yeah, the German Sherman, monkey. The, yeah. yeah. Uh, Sherman the sneezing monkey was a huge part of my story there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, uh, uh, Lee and Jeremy, I believe, wrote that. Uh, it was it was part of a Thanksgiving montage. Like we used to actually have to do a show on Thanksgiving Day. Oh, yes. which is crazy to think now, but we would actually do a, a show. And one of the things we do is David uh, at least buy like, a really nice Thanksgiving catered lunch for everyone. And we would generally write a bunch of jokes to shoot during the Thanksgiving lunch, where all the staffers are gathered. You know, uh, so uh, we wrote a bunch of crazy side gags of things that happened at the staff lunch. And one of them, I guess, Lee and Jeremy wrote, was a. Uh, you know, so-and-so brought his family, and so-and-so brought his friend. And, oh, Joe brought his pet monkey, Sherman. And there I am, sitting there with a, a, a monkey sitting next to me. And, you know, we're just kind of sitting there eating in unison. It was a very cute joke. It was, it was, it was fun. It was, it was uh, delightful. And uh, Sherman's real name in, in real life, uh, and this is a scoop. I hope you can get this out there. Uh, his real name was Sally. Uh, he was a, a, a girl monkey. Um, and she was a Barbary macaque monkey. Her specific species, if you want to put that into the official record, and uh, yeah, and that was also the origin of the sneezing monkey video that we showed several million times over the years. Um, in between takes, while I was sitting there with the monkey, uh, the monkey just happened to sneeze. And I asked the, I don't know if it was the director or the cameraman or whoever, hey, did we actually get that on video or is the camera down? Are you changing tape? And they checked us, oh no, we, we got that on video, and so I called the stingless and said. Um, we were shooting this thing with a monkey, and the monkey just sneezed. You think we could get that on the show? It might be a funny thing. So we just put a little art card and a little bit of music on it, and then cut to the monkey sneezing. And, and Dave loved it, and he showed it like four times that first night. And then he showed it the next night and the next night. And we ran that clip into the ground for the next uh, probably seven years or so until the show ended. But, yeah, that was Sally, also known as Sherman the Monkey Sneezing. And that's my leg next to her in the uh, in the video. So technically, I think I should get residuals from every time it was shown, but I have not gotten those. Well,
0: uh, somebody I worked with went to high school with somebody who worked at at Letterman, and his father, him and his father both worked there. And they would always. Uh, one year they were on one of the, the Thanksgiving sketches, but I don't remember the guy's name. Okay. He was a crew member.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing. Staff and crew always had to make sure. Remember, you're not having Thanksgiving dinner with your family this year, or at least not at the same time. You know, you should tell your family you're showing up a little bit late to Thanksgiving dinner. But it was nice. I mean, I, I, you can. Sometimes, a lot of people brought their families to the theater for for like a pre-dinner, and for most of the years there, you could also watch the parade go by because it was right there on Broadway. So that was a nice thing. So um, I don't begrudge Dave for doing that. There are obviously reasons they did that, and uh, it, it was it was a it was a good experience. No, did, uh, the other thing I, I should mention about the, 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 the monkey, um, a few years, at, I don't know, uh, after we, we've done the monkey a million times, I get a letter um, at the show because um, I guess I've, I've become known on the show as the monkey's caretaker. So someone wrote to me saying, Dear Mr. Grossman, I see that uh, I've seen that you have this sneezing monkey in your program. It's not only a monkey. It is a specifically a Barbary macaque. And I was wondering if you might know where I could buy one of these, preferably an infant or juvenile. And uh that might be the creepiest letter I've ever received in my life. And someone writes me trying to buy a an infant monkey. <laughs> I don't know how that purchase ends well.
0: He likes barely legal monkeys as, as...
1: the whole infant or juvenile just adds an extra layer of creepiness. But, uh, yeah. It also ties back to you know Dave's famous line from Cabin Boy, Want to buy a monkey. What kind of monster would would sell a monkey? Well, I, I guess.
0: At least you didn't have what Tim Kazerinsky, when who was on Siren well, Live, did that sketch. Yeah. I married a monkey. They actually uh, had an insurance policy on his life in case the monkey went out of control.
1: OK, I did not know that. But yeah, I mean, there are stories. I'm sure you've heard them of monkeys or chimps or various primate species uh not playing well with humans especially in uh in certain contexts yeah um i know i was a little wary of being with the monkey because i I, I, recently there had been that story of i think it was a couple and yeah ripped their face and other body parts off it's like oh god is this gonna happen but our handler assured us no the monkey is very very safe she's very tame you won't have to worry about anything at all but it, it 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 was frightening uh I thought I had something else about the monkey, but now I don't remember
0: it. Did Mike Myers ever come and as a, when he was a guest and want to touch the monkey?
1: No one really talked to me much about the monkey, but uh, I did get to see the monkey a few times more over the years. We'd occasionally bring her back. Uh, yeah, um, and one time we needed the monkey for something, and. <laughs> For some comedy bit, sorry, I've just got so much monkey gold here. Uh, so one time when we, we, we needed the monkey for something, and, and the animal handler said, uh, okay, I'll be right there. And she brought over, she came up with the monkey, um, but she warned us, uh, I can't stay long because I have a kangaroo waiting in the van. And we said, well, why do you have a kangaroo in the van? She said, because I can't leave the kangaroo alone, so I had to bring the kangaroo in the van. Like you know. So, okay. And then I think this is, again, Leo and Jeremy Weiner, who just wrote so much great stuff, they said, well, if you have a kangaroo on site, It's a shame not to use it. So they wrote the kangaroo into the piece. It was this thing called the story of the top 10 list that I think Steve had written. Steve Young maybe wrote the main thing, but then Liam Jeremy also wrote stuff for it. And so they wrote in a beat all about this long, elaborate process about how the top 10 list is made. And so they wrote a beat where, of course, we send the top 10 list to Dave via kangaroo messenger, and then we get a shot of a kangaroo just jumping down the hallway. How often in life does a kangaroo just literally fall into your... uh, to your life. It was, it was, it was, it was very entertaining. Uh, the other thing that I, I remember uh, about the monkey was uh, occasionally wanting to get the monkey, but if it was done on short notice, uh, you couldn't always get the monkey. And one, I remember one time being told, uh, sorry, we had, we had to uh, cancel this comedy bit because we couldn't get the monkey permit. <laughs> so these are the things you have to deal with when doing a, a television show. Sorry, your, your your comment about uh, Tim Kazerinsky and the, uh, the, the the monkey insurance forms reminded me of the monkey permit. There's a lot of red tape that goes with getting monkeys on their show. So uh, be forewarned if you ever try to do it yourself.
0: Okay. It's like better to have New rolls. rolls and not need them yeah. than need yeah, to need roll rolls and not have
1: them. That's, I believe, a Gerard Mulligan joke that still comes to mind every day. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and it's better to have a kangaroo and not need it than to need a kangaroo and not have it had a kangaroo so we were blessed many
0: times <laughs> like when you were telling the story i'm thinking of gerard telling me that telling me that story yeah
1: i and i, I love that quote and it, it, it applies to so many things in life
0: it's true all right so this zoom is gonna have to go i'm gonna have to turn That's it fine. off and then i'll email you okay. and then, all right cool okay all right i'll see you in a couple minutes Talk to you soon. 2008 and early 2009 was the writer's strike. Yeah. And what was that like in your situation?
1: Uh, it, it, it was it was a very mixed time for, for me. Um, I, I really felt bad because I knew a lot of writers would be out of work uh, and might be struggling. But just on my own personal level, I was kind of relieved because uh, I was constantly sort of on the verge of burnout. And this was an opportunity to take a couple months off unpaid but you know it's okay i'll, I'll i i just i needed I, it, working the show is always sort of like being on a treadmill you know and and, and even when you had a week off it, it, it didn't always recharge you so uh yeah it, it was a tough time but i appreciate the downtime personally and it was also just a very interesting thing to be on the picket line if you're part of this you know labor action you know how many people can say they've been part of a labor action set uh so you know Instead of writing jokes every day, now we have to go walk in the cold every day. And it was November, December, in New York City, and you know, uh, it, it was definitely very cold. Um, but it also kind of gave me a chance to. Uh, I was still the new writer at the time after all those years, and it kind of gave me a chance to. I, I feel like I bonded a little bit with the other writers just on the picket line. You know, you just have all this time to talk. You know, you got you got to march for four hours. Oh, so let's get to know each other, right? Um, so I think that going through that experience kind of helped me become a little more comfortable like being okay I I think I belong now I think I'm actually part of the team uh and also that's when some of the writers again Lee and Jeremy their names pop up constantly uh started writing me these little videos that we would make for the picket line and make for the writers guild and stuff just little videos and I think that was sort of a precursor to them putting me on the show more when we came back because uh it was shortly after the strike when we really started running into the show a lot. Um, but yes, yeah, so, so our, our strike was only two months long. And then I think for everyone else in the industry, it lasted another six weeks because we had the luxury of having uh, a production company owned by Dave that agreed with the writers and said, yes, I'll give the Writers Guild whatever they want. It's fine. I agree with you. I'll sign the deal right now and we'll go back to work. And so that, that, was, that was good. I mean, it, was, it was nice to have someone like Dave on our side who was a member of the guild and had a lot of respect for the writers and uh, and did everything he could to uh, make sure we did everything the, the, the proper way.
0: And the first day of the of the strike was all the famous writers uh, picketing. Uh, yeah,
1: no, I, 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 I think I heard someone else on your podcast, I don't remember who it was, saying, yeah, The someone saying the celebrities didn't show up after the first day. Okay. Um, I don't know if that's the case or not. I, I don't remember it that well. Uh, but I, I think I saw some, fam- I think like I saw Richard Belzer constantly uh always walking around um i know we saw some other people i saw tina fey a bunch of times i saw you know robin williams came out one time um i saw buck henry that was exciting for me like to see like this you know like this this real elder statesman for lack of a better word um i didn't talk to him or anything but just oh that's that's the guy who created get smart that's uh you know that's he did some of snl's weirdest craziest stuff so yeah um it was a very exciting experience, and I hope not to repeat it ever again.
0: In 2009, you started coming on where you would do jokes. They were clearly yeah. about somebody, but yeah. you, you were saying, but the whole premise was, we've done so many jokes about that person, doing about this person. And you right. did a lot of Leno jokes, because this was when he stole the financial from uh, Colonel O'Brien. And... Yeah. So you were doing Leno jokes, but you we did were doing one version of that. That was Leno jokes, yeah. And then you did them as you just made them Conan jokes, but just replacing the name.
1: Yeah, the, the the premise, I guess, it started with uh, Barack Obama jokes. Was oh, you know, there's so much criticism of these late night shows that everyone's going after John McCain, but no one's going after Barack Obama. Why does no one go after Obama? And well, my thought of that was really they're going after McCain because. They weren't even McCain jokes, they were just old guy jokes. It was an easy hook. So you just take whatever old guy jokes you've had lying around for thousands of years. Or Bob Dole. And you just, yeah, you're, yeah, exactly. You're taking your Bob Dole jokes and changing the name. So I didn't even think of those as McCain or Obama jokes, just uh, old guy jokes. And um, Obama didn't really have a salient feature like that other than being black, which is not really a great thing to be joking about like that. So um, the premise and uh, – I think, again, this is a combination of of me and Lee and Jeremy was, well, what if we have a writer who claims to have cracked the code on writing those jokes about Obama, but really he's just taking the same jokes we've been telling about George W. Bush for the past eight years and changed the name. So it's not just Barack Obama is so dumb, but it's Barack Obama is so dumb when his father, George George H. W. Bush, told him to whatever. So it's just so sloppy and lazily gone. And that's sort of The wheelhouse of of the thing that they would find funny, so uh, that proved to be a very successful formula that we repeated many, many times. And uh, usually it was Obama jokes, but we also branched out. We did, uh, as you mentioned, it was during the Leno Conan thing. uh, You know, it's like, oh, why are we making fun of Leno every night? You know, what about? What about Conan? I think we can all agree that both parties are out So let's do some jokes about Conan. And then it was all jokes about, you know, Conan O'Brien is so whatever. When he took his classic car collection over to O'Hita, or, you know, when he and Mavis went out to dinner last night. So it was all clearly jokes about Leno being kind of a, uh, maybe not the most upright kind of guy, but with the surface veneer of trying to be fair. And then we also did a version about Chris Christie. I remember doing that. And, uh, I I know the next day Chris Christie actually commented about that in a press conference saying, yeah, and the letterman's got this guy coming out there doing jokes about me. that's okay, You know, it's fine. But, you know, I think that time it was can we do jokes about him that aren't about how fat he is? So I don't know if it was maybe it was he's so not fat jokes or was it maybe or it might have been he's so dumb, but it still turned out to be a fat joke. So I don't know. We always found a way to come back to exactly the kind of thing that we were supposedly trying to avoid. And that's the old comedy switcheroo. that I learned at the American Comedy Institute during my four-year study there.
0: It's like the Sorbonne of comedy.
1: Yes, it is. I'm classically trained in in comedy writing and fat jokes and clowning.
0: My favorite story of Chris Christie is that his, um, I'm sure you wrote jokes about it, um, was when his son was in a Little League game and he took the the governor's helicopter to the Little League field, parked it, and then took a limo from the next field to the seats. Oh, okay. So okay. he didn't even walk. He didn't even walk from the yeah from there to one place. No, he took a limo for, to to the seats.
1: You know, I don't want to be disrespectful because he is our next president. Uh, so I think we should just show him a little bit of respect what, here.
0: What's scary is that wouldn't be that bad.
1: After the last four years, I, I wouldn't love it, but okay, I'll I'll, I'll take that. I <laughs> mean, you know, it's okay. Not the last four years. I mean. 2016, 2020. I, I'm still stuck in the Trump years somehow mentally, but uh, I'm trying to get out of that.
0: Now, I think your most famous character on on the show was OX, the wilderness expert.
1: Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, America fell in love with OX. Yes, it was a national sensation. He's on T-shirts and lunchboxes everywhere.
0: The spinoff was inevitable, but you know,
1: yeah, Dave didn't want tried. to try.
0: Dave didn't want to lose the character. Understandable. We, we
1: tried a backdoor deal and it didn't work out. But you know, I'm still shopping it around. Gonna to talk to Quibby about it.
0: <laughs> it was like when Lenny and Squiggy try leave <laughs> Vernon and Charlie said no, I'm not gonna yeah. happen. Yeah. My favorite part the of that, My favorite part off. of that is when you almost when you're drinking the urine, and uh-huh. he says, "Whose urine is it?" And then you're about to say, "Her Hancock Okay, that one. Yes, I remember. That. Okay, yeah, it, it
1: took me a minute to remember that one yeah that was just such a a strange answer (laughs) that came out of nowhere (laughs) i found it hard not to laugh at that one yeah like I, i i always tried so hard not to break because the one thing i had going for me was i could do a deadpan and if that's the only thing that allowed me to be on their show if it looked like i was having fun then there's no point in me being there um but yeah having to say that i'm drinking herbie hancock's urine was so out of left field um Yeah, i don't even remember how we got to that i think was herbie hancock on the show that week or something maybe um but yeah that that character ox the wilderness expert that was i believe created by tom Ruprecht. you talked to him right yes so yeah tom wrote a whole bunch of those for me and, and 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 uh and and somehow over the years i pretended to drink urine many many times there was that uh i also did a couple of installments where i was the uh uh, when the International Space Station installed a urine recycler, it turned urine into drinkable water. Uh, I think it was Lee and Jeremy who were the thing about needing the astronaut who has to test the unit and so like drink the sample and then swish it around and say, oh, "Forgot to, forgot to turn it on." Still yeah. urine. So there you go. And so we, we actually did that one twice, the same joke. And the other one I remember was uh, when there was the big Charlie Sheen two and a half men meltdown. And it was announced that Charlie Sheen would have to do a drug test every week, and so I was supposedly the CBS doctor who was doing the drug tests. So I, I come out there with the, with the samples and I swish around and everything, and then, and and you know, hey, here's the big joke: he drinks the urine. What? No. And I swish around my mouth, and the the gag line, the 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 punchline is: eh, that tastes more like John Cryer's urine to me. <laughs> so, very good. It's it's not a bad joke, but uh. If you've watched Letterman over the years, especially in the 80s, it's not exactly a secret. That's kind of derivative of what Chris Elliott used to do. I don't know if you remember him.
0: Yeah, with the, the dog, food tests, t- dog food test. Dog food. The yeah. dog
1: food. And they did like the paint. And I used the uh, latex paint or the non-latex paint. So Chris Elliott has two different jugs of paint. And he's kind of stirring around. And, and then he drinks one. So, yeah. I mean, that. I don't know if it was a deliberate uh, homage or not, but it, it was certainly deeply indebted to what Chris Light used to do, so yeah. But that was that was very fun to do, and and just to say, you know, someday I can tell my kids, Daddy used to drink urine on television.
0: Although, <laughs> with all different. the whole Alec Baldwin thing, you're lucky that the guy who was in charge of the urine didn't make a mistake,
1: I guess so. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I was always very careful though, you always. Here's a professional tip. I, I, if anyone out there is listening, any kids out there in the audience listening who want to be a comedy writer, um, always sniff the flask for
0: urine. So. Makes perfect sense. The more you know. But um, yes. I always wonder when the Brigger water filtration system came out, uh, that if you urinate in it, will it make drinking water? Never tried no, it, I, but...
1: Not that hard you know it's, it's an experiment you can do at home uh, especially summer vacation if the kids are around you know it's, it's, it's an activity
0: uh, I'm not a science teacher I'm a history teacher so oh, I'm sorry okay I'm sorry Grace Helbig um yeah do you mind telling that story
1: uh yeah I mean I, I yeah uh, so another thing that Lee and Jeremy wrote for me was uh it was Joe, Grace, Joe Grossman's insights and analysis or something
0: geopolitical um, insights and analysis
1: that's it okay yeah so okay our, our our you know our dead behind the eyes idiot writer comes out with his take on the news and uh instead of actually talking about the news i come out flanked by three very attractive women all wearing fancy dresses and everything and all hanging off of me as if they're in love of me in love with me and we did that two or three times and uh i don't even remember exactly how the, i think the joke is basically oh joe did you just write this bit for yourself, so that you could have these beautiful women. And yeah, I guess so. So, um, and our, our our casting people, you know, they have to go out and find actresses who are willing to pretend to find me attractive, which is, you know, not always easy. And so they they hired these three very lovely women. And then only after the fact do I find out, oh, one of these is uh, is her name is Grace, and she's actually a huge internet celebrity, or I think she had a modest following then that blew up much more after that. I don't think a year later, she would not have, you know, been caught dead, pretending to want to be around me. Um, But at at that point in her career, uh, yeah. So um, I only found out later, much later that, oh, she's actually kind of a big deal. She's got a huge following and she's very popular. Later on, she had her own show for a while. Um, I honestly don't know that much else about her, but it was, it was, I, I felt bad that she had to lower herself to that for me but i, I appreciate that she uh, uh participated in, in 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 the bit um
0: howard stern's wife to the turn, I think the in howard stern's wife did similar her, things at letterman
1: that's right she was she was also yeah beth uh, uh yeah yeah she was also a, a, a frequent uh and and this might say something about the show that perhaps we lean a little too heavily on using attractive women as props uh, i would say in hindsight um that's the case but, um, yeah, it was, I, I hope, done with about as much respect as you could. Uh, but, yeah, Beth Ostrowski, Grace Helbig. I'm sure there are others who went on to big
0: things. As Dave would say, leggy supermodels. Leggy supermodels, yeah. There, there are, like, things that Dave said that you you say in your daily vernacular. And you're like, wow, that's like a lettering thing.
1: Wow. His his voice really worms its way into your, your skull. <laughs> and it, it, it doesn't come out. I mean, just as a viewer, you pick up so much of it. And then when you also have to kind of recreate his voice every day by writing material for him, it's just exponentially greater. But yeah, even to this day, I find myself sometimes talking like him, uh, which most people don't notice it, but I'm sure someone like you who watch the show a lot, it's like, I think you're channeling Dave a little bit. It's like, oh God, go, go. But let me, let me turn the Dave off. It's been seven years. Let's, <laughs> let's see if there's a real person here underneath that.
0: It helped me though in school is because I could memorize things if I, if I study for a test while this while having Dave on and then I'll just try to remember what the joke was or remember his desk piece and then all the information wow. will just come back to me and wow. um yeah so I have this weird or audio memory where I can remember yeah. things based on what I heard when I read it so okay. and it's like so you know I, I got like Letterman and Carson jokes from like 1989 bouncing around in my head that yeah, I need it works for you yeah yeah and you you let viewers into your life with your birthing class recaps.
1: Yeah, that was again Lee and Jeremy. Yes, wrote that for me.
0: But you were actually your wife was actually pregnant.
1: Yeah, that that was true. Yeah, uh, that was based on you know my wife was pregnant and and you know the the writers we would sit around in the conference room and and we had a lot of downtime to just hang out and talk and eat dinner and watch the show and stuff and you talk about each other's lies and and, and you make jokes back and forth and tease each other. And uh, oftentimes that teasing would work its way into the show, and and that was a very fun thing. And so the the other writers knew I was going to this birthing class, and they thought that was kind of funny that this weird, awkward guy is going to this class. And I would tell them about some of the things we learned about, and involve phrases like mucus plug, which uh, made everyone uncomfortable. Um, and uh, so they wrote that into into the show. It's like, oh, let's let's, let's find out what Joe's learning in his in his birthing class, and. I believe as soon as I said the phrase "mucus plug," Dave politely cut me off and said, "Okay, I think that's enough." (laughs) But that's as it was scripted. That was not a spontaneous thing, of course. Right. So yeah, and then and then uh, a few months later, Dave actually announced the birth of my first child on the show, which was uh, again very exciting. It's this guy I grew up watching. This guy who meant so much to me uh, in my early years, and now here he is holding up a, a, a photo. Was there a photo? I don't know if there's a photo, but but announcing the birth of my child. It's it's. Again, how did this become a reality? But, uh, yeah, it's great.
0: And how old is it? it? Was I don't remember. Was it daughter or son?
1: It's a son? It's a little girl. She's nine now. That was nine years ago. So, uh, yeah. And it's all on the record out there in... In, in, in,
0: uh, in Don Giller's archive. Uh,
1: yes, in, in Don Giller's archive and Mike McIntyre's Wahoo Gazette and all the other uh, archives out there.
0: Because no, I, have, I have a 10-year-old, so I was just going... Past that, when um, you were when you were going going through it, I would just pet. I just had that in the rearview mirror because my daughter. Yeah. that was that point in time really where I couldn't watch Dave because I was just exhausted.
1: Yeah, I felt that way a lot too. Um, wasn't really my choice at that
0: point. But yeah. <laughs> and then in 2014, you started doing the pun. The puns when you went up to the Wu Tang Clan and the Foo Fighters. Oh yeah, yeah. Which is still yeah. which is still on YouTube and gets a lot of hits.
1: That's one of the few things that's still out there. Like, I know a lot of stuff got wiped off the internet a, a while back. And uh, that, the Foo Fighters and the Wu-Tang Clan, those are still up there. Um, I want to say that was Lee and Jeremy. At this point, I might as well just say everything was Lee and Jeremy. But again,
0: <laughs> So what writing, did you write for um, the
1: <laughs> Again, I didn't write for myself. I didn't want to be like, hey, everyone put me on the show. Look at me, you know? So, uh, But yeah, that was, I think that was them. And yeah, it's just, we had them on the show and it's like, what, what, what kind of comedy bits can we do with the, the Foo Fighters? Eh, let's have our, our idiot writer pitch jokes to them, but they're really bad jokes. They'll, they're all based on Foo. So, hey, you know, the crime-solving dog named Scooby-Foo and whatever. I mean, just, just deliberately terrible jokes that are, have no business being on television, but at least they're archived for, for eternity
0: right and i'll always whenever anybody brings up the food fighters i always have to say hey they're out there every night fighting food fighting food
1: yeah and that's not one of those things where dave's dave's use of words just grabs onto your mind and doesn't let go
0: and i didn't know he was such a big fan until the last show
1: Yeah, he seemed to be into them yeah, yeah.
0: i like that your last appearance you came out with a highlight video because that was what the guests were doing over the last yeah. couple of uh weeks yeah. so you came out with rj freed and, right. and with your highlight video yeah
1: honestly i don't remember much about that one what, what was the joke just the highlights were all really boring or or what
0: was well, i don't even think he got to the it's just the idea of the two guys that were writers on the show and it was just like bill murray was just there here's the highlights of bill murray and then right. you guys okay. came on and said, um here's our highlights we like to play them yeah
1: he's two dumbasses no one wants to see yeah uh, no offense to RJ, not that he's a dumbass, but there are characters who are dumbasses. RJ is a very smart guy. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I don't remember much about that one, but yeah, that was uh, I guess that was my last appearance. I, I don't even remember specifically. They all kind of blurred together after a while.
0: Yeah, I think it was in late late April, so it had to be like your last appearance.
1: Yeah, it sounds say. like it.
0: And you were the, you were there when uh, Norm Macdonald, who's one of my favorite comedians, yeah. did his last appearance, and you actually tweeted it. Uh,
1: That's one of my very few tweets i think i'm still under triple digits for my tweeting history but yeah just seeing that one live i mean i wasn't in the studio i I never watched the studio but uh just seeing it live on the feed and it's like wow this is norm breaking down is like like since then i've seen him i I had seen him be emotional on certain occasions but at that moment i'd never seen that before and it's like wow this is like a really genuine emotional moment and you see how much uh, Dave meant to him. So that, that was really remarkable, and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know if there's much more to say about it beyond that, but yeah, that was a really great set.
0: So the show ends, and was there a big party after the last show? Yeah, uh,
1: there was uh, there was a party at, I want to say it was MoMA, Museum of Modern Art, uh, where they closed off a wing or something, and, and, and a bunch of staff and crew and some I guess the the celebrity guests from that night's top ten list and stuff uh, just hung around MoMA, just decompressing after uh, after the big show. And it, it, I I couldn't really enjoy it much because in my case it was decompressing after losing my job. So I was just sort of in a, in a daze, like, oh my God, I'm unemployed now. This this thing that's been the centerpiece of my life for eleven years just went down the toilet. Um, but yeah, there was that. And then after that there was a viewing party at a, at a bar around the corner from the, uh, the Ed Sullivan theater where I went and watched the show uh, as it aired. And uh, yeah. So you just all kind of sat there and it's, it's kind of like being at a wake. It's like, well, it's affectionate and celebratory, but also mournful. Right. And then, uh, yeah, the next day I had to clean up my office and, uh, and they tore everything down. They ripped out the set and they, tore offices apart and threw a bunch of stuff out. You know, it's okay. It's just time marches on.
0: Yeah. And somebody rescued the uh, desk and they have a, they have a show.
1: Yeah. People rescued different parts of the set. Uh, I know Chris Gethard got some things and then another guy who's got a a web show, got a bunch of other stuff. Uh, I I didn't take anything. I had enough just weird knickknacks from over the years. I was tempted to, because like, I hate to see all these things go in the garbage, but you know, I have a, New York City apartment. All I took was, you know, I got whatever weird props I made over the years. I didn't throw out. I got, you know, a bunch of scripts and uh, a couple of cue cards and I got some old, old bumper cards from the old late night show, the old, uh, you're going commercial and out commercial where they'd have like some weird no. city scene with the late night logo or words late. night I feel that been incorporated somewhere. I grabbed a few of those. Um, so I, 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 I got some nice mementos the show, But mostly it's just, yeah, trying to let the memories do the, the heavy lifting there this is a weird
0: question did you did your pay stub say CBS did they say worldwide pants
1: you know that's a good question because I also wondered that like would I have to put worldwide pants on my taxes and would that confuse my accountant and all that sort of thing uh and it actually everything goes through a I think almost every show actually pays people through some professional payroll organization wow. with a very generic name so no but my, my it all just comes through that company um it would have been kind of cool to have worldwide pants paychecks though yeah you uh, go to the like bank
0: this. and it's like here okay yeah
1: yes i, I I'm, I'm in the garment industry uh,
0: <laughs> or no i mean david letterman wrote, wrote me you know gave me this job oh, yeah, doing yeah, a no, good Dave, job Dave
1: was not Dave was not cutting checks but yeah.
0: no but you know that and i'm not the bank teller
1: yeah right. yeah that's atms atms yeah. don't care
0: what did you do anything in the year before full frontal at samantha Bay? you probably were pilot did you ever do that Uh, i i i
1: spent the, the year like the last few months of letterman and the first few months after letterman um applying to and getting rejected by uh pretty much any show i could um and i say that not with bitterness just just with acknowledgement of the fact that it's a very competitive field and no matter how experienced you are what kind of credits you have. There's no guarantee that you'll you'll be lucky enough to get hired again. So uh, I, I wrote some I think decent packets for other shows, some not so great packets. And thankfully, um, TBS was starting up this new show, so they they had they were starting a whole up a whole writers room, a small room, but nonetheless a whole room. So they had uh, initially six slots to fill, and I was hugely lucky to get one of those. And uh, yeah, so that was working for uh, Full Frontal Samantha B which. Turned into a seven-year gig that was really great. Um, just ended, unfortunately, because of corporate mergers and such. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was it was it was very very um, reassuring. I was worried that maybe I just kind of gotten lucky with Letterman. Like, well, you know, I mailed in these jokes, and I got hired, but you know, is that just just a fluke, or is it just you know, I grew up watching so much Letterman that I kind of get that voice. But can I do anything else? And then so you know just getting hired at another show and also another show that was run by uh, a very smart and uh talented head writer uh, named joe miller who she is the smartest person i've ever met in my life and the fact that she read my packet and liked it enough to hire me says okay this was not a fluke i guess i must have some sort of talent to do something and i could do the kind of silly stuff we did at Letterman, but maybe i can also do this sort of for lack of a better uh, expression a uh, serious comedy that you see on the, you know, like the, the the Daily Show, John Oliver kind of model that, and Colbert model that you see these days, so, um, yeah.
0: And, and that was done in New York or was that done in- Yeah, that was
1: in New York. Okay. Yeah, we, we did that uh, at the CBS Broadcast Center just a few blocks away from the Ed Sullivan Theater, so even my commute didn't really change. It's just, yeah, just turn right instead of going straight and, you know, it's the same thing. Um, so, yeah, that, that was that was a great experience and then uh, and then <laughs> discovery about our, parent company a couple of months ago and then they canceled pretty much everything on the network and uh so you know i'm back on the market but everything will be fine there are ups and downs in one's career and even if this is the last thing i ever do it's like you know i, I had 18 years as, as a writer in late night comedy uh, i won an emmy award i won a couple of writers guild awards I got to drink urine on television <laughs> there's not a whole lot more than a person could ask for I don't
0: know. if you had to rank those three
1: yeah, you know, i put the Emmy and then the, the urine and then the Writer's Guild Awards.
0: Well, the Writer's Guilds from your peers, so, you know,
1: yeah. Yeah, okay, but the, the urine also came from my, my peers, so I, I, I respect that. I, mm-hmm. the, the writers, they thought a lot about putting... They they knew that I could pull off the, the urine drinking bit, so
0: that meant a lot to me. Um, With the Full Frontal, it was a weekly show. And yeah. And how many in a season?
1: Uh, it varied a little bit. I'd say it was typically around 35 which after doing five shows a week 200 shows a year for right. more than a decade you just feel like you're getting away with something
0: sure i was really, going to ask you. you
1: you only want one of these things you're sure i mean, I, I guess okay yeah, yeah, sure um but you get the luxury of, of it's not like you're not working it's just you have a lot more time to think about what you're writing which is again if you're doing different kinds of shows at letterman it's uh it's it's, it's an assembly line it's quick you gotta Just crank out jokes as fast as you can about anything and everything.
0: The tape cut off right there, but Joe reiterated that he was proud of his 18 years in television and that even though he had a great time with Letterman, he felt that he arrived at the party a little late.